This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. It's a bit of a windswept day here today in the Northumberland National Park. My name's Jez Lowe. I'm a folk singer and songwriter. And on today's Open Country, I wanted to look into some of the myths and legends of this region. It's Halloween, so I expect to find a few ghosts hiding in this border country. But the real history that is this landscape has plenty of drama of its own. You can see Hadrian's Wall if we look to the north, and you'll see that characteristic scarp and dip landscape. It's called a Cuesta landscape. We're actually standing on the roof of a fabulous new building, the Sill. And with me here is Chris Jones, who is the historic environment officer at the National Park. He's the man to tell us about uh, the splendid views that we have from this point. The scarp and dip landscape comes from the geology, comes from this windsill, this kind of great, kind of shiny kind of rock, which is used in road building, for example. And there were lots of quarries that you will see here, lots of industrial activity, absolutely contrary to the landscape that you see today of tranquility and peace. But that was there because of the windstone rock, this dolerite, which forms the basis of the landscape that you see today. Is that the Roman wall as it follows the edge of this sill as it goes round? It is. The Romans were really good land surveyors. They had what are called the agrimensore. They had a tool called a groma, and they could measure straight lines in the landscape. And they would have known about geology too. For example, we think one of the reasons that Hadrian's Wall is here it's north of the North Pennines lead ore field. So that galena, that rock that's abundant in the North Pennines is very important to the Romans. So they wanted it on their side of the wall? I think so. But of course they're only a small part of the history of this landscape. It's a very much a, a blood-soaked landscape around here. It's battle after battle, army after army descending on this place to, to fight it out. No wonder there's so many strange myths and legends about the place. Absolutely. It's a frontier zone. Clearly the Romans left a country in turmoil. And that's where a lot of the legends, for example, the Arthur legends come from, which are all over this Hadrian's Wall landscape. Because what they don't know is the remote past. So what they're doing is they're trying to fill that with stories and snippets that they found from all over the place. Well, this episode of Open Country is going out on Halloween and, of course, the sky here, the vast sky, is probably one of the darkest skies in the country. Yeah, absolutely, and we protect this dark sky. It's part of Europe's largest dark sky park. You can actually be grounded in the landscape, yet look up and see constellations that people would have looked at used, navigated by hundreds of years ago. I'm following you here, Chris. Where exactly are you leading us? Across to the crags, by the looks of things. This is Peel Crags, and Peel Crags is one of the finest examples that you'll see here of the windsill intrusion. And you'll follow the characteristic scarp and dip that goes all the way along King's Crags, Queen's Crags, and they're very close to Sewing Shields Crags, But the idea that they are resting soldiers waiting for the call of King Arthur again to rescue the country in times of strife probably can be quite redolent of current times as well as past times. A lot of the legends and the spooky stories that I've heard 
involve things like the the Jotuns, the giant beings that uh, wandered around these fells, and the red caps. What's all that about? As an archaeologist or a historian, you would look at the truth of where these origins came from. If you were out and you didn't know local paths and local customs, you could be very easily led astray. And that's where this fear of the unknown turns itself into these mythical creatures. I'm back on the B6318, or the military road as it's known at this place. It was actually built in the time of the Jacobite uprising. And I think there was also an ancient Roman road that tracked along this way. Quite a few years ago now, a friend of mine, a great singer from Hexham, Judy Dinning, told me the story of how she passed a man dressed in a cloak and he was kneeling at the side of the road late at night. She was intrigued by that, so she turned the car around, went back, and of course when she got there, there was nobody to be found. And it inspired me to write a song for her to sing, trying to evoke the thought of some poor Roman soldier who's been forever forced to tramp this military road. I met a man, not dressed for weather, and oh such a weather, the north wind bitterly blows through cruel lands that reach the border. The bleakest border along the military road. This is the Elsden gibbet, also known as Winter's gibbet, and it's about six miles from Elsden, I think, in the wilds of bleak and miserable Northumberland. We've travelled to the uh, far east part of the Northumberland National Park, and uh, the weather is pretty bleak up here. It's, there's a drizzle and heavy grey cloud, somewhat appropriately to be next to the uh, the winter's gibbet. I'm here with Icy Sedgwick, who's a blogger and storyteller, and she's going to tell us all about this rather macabre, I think it's about a 20-foot-high gibbet here on the moors. I think one of the fascinating things about this one is because a lot of places where they've got the stories, the place itself doesn't exist anymore, so you can just see a ruin or so on, but you can't miss the gibbet. It just sort of you know, draws the eye, and obviously the wind steals your voice while you're <laughs> standing nearby. We're standing uh, below the gibbet now, something that I never thought I, w- I would find myself doing. The story itself, when exactly does it go back to, I see? 1791. Basically, it was a woman called Margaret Crozier, and she ran the local general shop. And there was one evening, she was just sort of hanging out with a couple of her friends who'd come to see her. And as they came to leave towards the end of the evening, the dogs outside started barking at like a pile of hay. And the friends were like, ooh, ooh, lock your door, something's not right. And Margaret was like, oh, no, I'll be fine. I'll see you soon. And then in the morning, a customer turns up and she notices that something's just not quite right. So she goes and gets a couple of neighbours. I think one of them's one of the friends from the night before. And they go in and Margaret's not downstairs. So they go upstairs and there she is lying on her bed with her throat cut. And obviously there was you know, an ensuing manhunt after that, as you can imagine. And I think they'd found a butcher's knife among her bed linen. And then it was the testimony of a couple of young boys who'd actually seen someone carrying a knife like that. So eventually they tracked down the three people that they believed did it. And they were all sentenced to be hanged at Westcott 
and then the two sisters involved were going to get sent to the surgeon's hall for dissection because obviously in those days that was the only way that you could get hold of bodies for dissection because it was before the Anatomy Act. And then William Winter, the chap involved, was then hung from a gibbet within sight of the scene of the crime. Certainly a warning to the locals. Obviously because he hung there for a while. The smell got so bad that they had to stop horses going past because the horses were complaining, understandably so. And then they actually put a wooden effigy of him hanging from the, the, the gibbet. People used to steal parts of the, the effigy because they believed that the wooden splinters from it would help cure toothache. Every time it's been vandalised or destroyed, there's always a new one being put back up again. I think it's partly just because of the fact that this particular part of the country is so blood-soaked. This is an, a reminder that actually, yes, you can punish people and you can get the wrong ones and, and people can be brought to account for what they've done. Are there any other sort of similar tales or even more supernatural tales around here that you're aware of? I think all of Northumberland's got some kind of tale associated with it. I mean, we're not that far from Rothbury where you've got the Simonside Dwarves. Sewing Shields isn't that far away where allegedly King Arthur sleeps beneath waiting for somebody to come and bring him back to save the nation. So, like, someone wants to get on that quite quickly. But if you can think of a mythological creature or um, fairy tale creature, there's probably a version of it in Northumberland. But they're often a lot more hardcore than the versions that you get elsewhere. That might be because we're northerners. And I think it's because, you know, we get so much stuff about the lighter side of life, but it's the darker side of life that you want to know about because then you know how to protect yourself against that. And I mean, that's what fairy tales were. Back in the day, there were cautionary tales and sort of, what we now consider essentially like health and safety videos that were kind of an early version of that. It's Halloween today. Should we really uh, be standing next to this uh, gibbet here on Halloween? People always talk about the veil between the worlds being thinner, so that appears in cultures literally all over the world. We look at the Mexican Day of the Dead. Certain areas end up attracting more stories because it's like the old Roman idea of the genius loci, the spirit of a place, and that's why we've got the river god Tyne on the side of the Civic Centre because he's the personification of ours. The older spirits that were here before people... Maybe they're not that friendly. Maybe they don't like the fact that, you know, we've, we've carved up their environment with motorways and service stations and so on. Or it could just be the fact that people have an innate sensitivity to things that we can't quite see, but nobody can really explain them because science hasn't come up with an answer yet. Whether you believe that something's going to specifically come looking for you or not, that's like entirely up to the, the listener's discretion. But I, w- I would say be careful who you open the door to if anyone comes knocking after dark. Well, Northumberland is, uh, is not short of uh, fine manor houses and stately homes and castles, but I have to say the one we've just arrived at here at uh, Featherston Castle near Holtwhistle is one of the most spectacular that I've seen. And we're uh, here to meet with uh, Dr Martin Hudson from Northumbria University. Martin, what is your interest in this part of the world? I'm very interested in the nature of the landscape, that it's a very sedimented landscape full of stories and horrors, atrocities, mass murders, dispossession. It's a place where there were struggles during the wars of religion between Protestant and Catholic, and those marks don't just leave the trace in the landscape but also on the lives of the living. The reason why people return back time and time again to the ghost story is that it means something to them. People never forgot those hauntings and never forgot those stories and those retributions and acts of violence in these places. 
Okay, the uh, the door is waiting for us, so let's have a, a venture in with this big, impressive iron handle which I'm about to turn. Here we are in a very warm and cosy part of uh, Featherston Castle with the owner, John Clark. John, could you tell me something of the history of this splendid place of yours? It started as a farm back in the uh, 10th century. 1345, they built a peel tower. If you think the farms didn't have any fences and therefore their stock was spread all over the place, you needed a place where you could put somebody to stand and watch. It wasn't very difficult for the Scots to come down into the valley here and round up some cattle and just take them back over into the debatable lands. Mind, we did the same the other way round. <laughs> Anyhow, around about um, Henry VIII's time, Bishop Ridley, who was Bishop of London, and came from Williamswick Farm, which is near Barden Mill, and he was burnt at the stake by Queen Mary in uh, 1547, I think. And the reason why I mention him is that his nephew fell in love with Abigail Featherstonhalf, who was a Catholic, and he was a Protestant. Albany Featherstonhalf, the lord of the manor, told his daughter she couldn't marry a Protestant. And she was married off to a Thomas Blenkinsop, and they had the wedding down at uh, Holtwistle. And then afterwards, they had to come and beat the bounds of the estate. And they came up over the sheep hills at Holtzell and, and then up through Pinkins Clough. Anyhow, Albany Felsenhoff, who was getting on a bit, hadn't gone down to Holtzell for the wedding. And he stayed and prepared the meal, the, the feast up in the stone hall, which is in the Peel Tower. We're now actually in the oldest part of the castle, at the, uh, at the foot at the, the bottom end of the, of the Peel Tower. The wedding party, as they reached Pinking Clough, were met by the Ridleys. All of them were massacred. Abigail herself was cut in two and didn't return for the feast uh, that Albany had here waiting for them until... On the stroke of midnight, he heard the horses outside the tower and then the footsteps of the party as they entered the banqueting hall. The smoke in the room cleared and up through the main doors of the castle into what is now the oldest part of the castle, the ghostly wedding parties marched through the heads under their arms and took their rightful places in the banqueting hall, ready to eat. In January each year, the wedding party, decked out in blood and rags, return to have their own parties in this space. And here we are actually in the hall itself. And I have to say, there's a certain chill in the air as well as in the back of my neck. Well, of course, it's both magical and absolutely terrifying. Uh, In later years, I brought my 10-year-old daughter here with her friends. And of course, it was a hugely important experience for them to feel the visitations and the recurrences of history. We want to feel the presence of the dead, perhaps a signal to change direction or to warn us about our 
social and ecological catastrophes, or perhaps to seek vengeance from beyond the grave for crime that was perpetrated. It's that time of year where the living feel closest to the dead, and even ghosts as remote to us as the ghosts of this castle, that somehow it brings meaning back into our lives, not just fearfulness. Just as this building itself has survived, of course, in this part of the world, a lot of the uh, the songs and ballads have survived as well. Folk music is a way of bringing the dead and the resonances of history back into this moment. And it's also a way of persisting into the future of something that's so important to our culture here in the north of England. We've talked a lot about the songs and ballads of Northumberland and I'm here in uh, St Andrew's Churchyard in Corbridge to meet one of the uh, best-known exponents of uh, Northumbrian song, Rachel Unthank. And actually there's an old peel tower just over there, which is now a pub that my dad runs a music session in as well. It's strange being here in a, in a graveyard because your music has a, a certain dark edge to it, I think. <laughs> Well, we were brought up with it, so maybe our capacity to take in Doc's songs and ballads was kind of because we'd heard so many as from being kids, and that's what actually really drew us into the music, was the storytelling in it, and kind of this magical world where adults told each other stories through song. Those songs continue to draw us, really because of their complexity and the way they don't shy away from kind of dark issues. And I think it's a way of kind of exercising and thinking about the hard things in life and, you know, that that never goes away. There is a complexity to them, but also a simplistic way. Almost like, reminds me of Appalachian music, mm. you know, the sort of the mountain music from America, the way that uh, the untanked sound. I think as a band, we're very keen that the stories and the words are key and that all the music should help towards that. And so Adrian does a lot of arranging. Adrian McNally was in, in the band. He's from Yorkshire, actually, and he, when he came here, he was really, like, surprised at how much kind of vaster Northumberland is. And I think full of like ancient history and and war and castles and as you know it's like called the debatable land for a long time and unthanks also were a border reaver family unthank means to go on to common land like a squatter <laughs> we've discovered very glamorous yes we've heard a lot in this program about the warring families and, and the battles and in, and in fact on my father's side i'm from the charlton probably responsible for nearly wiping out the unthanks at some Definitely. point. Definitely, there's not many of us around. There's well, lots of Charltons. Well, can I apologise <laughs> for that? Uh, and there's, there's one song we were t- talking about earlier. I remember trying to sing myself many years ago, The Laidly Worm. It's a fabulous story and it's set around Bamborough Castle, which is a fantastic castle that overlooks the Northumbrian coast. It's about a king and his daughter and he brings a new wife home. But somebody makes a mistake of saying how beautiful she is so the new queen doesn't like her and turns her into a ladly worm, which means loathsome. And she's like venomous and this worm is massive and it lives in a cave by the beach and like they have to get like loads of cattle to feed it and stuff but she has a brother who's away and he comes back in his ship he kind of battles the worm but then he's kind to her and then she turns back into his sister for seven miles east and seven miles west and seven miles north and south no blade of grass or corn could grow so venomous was her mouth 
the milk of seven stately cows it was costly her to keep was brought a daily which she drank before she went to sleep I know that you, you're known to sing with your sister Becky and it just crosses my mind that a lot of the songs have been about conflict between sisters. There's one here that I know that you sing, The Cruel Sister. Yeah, well, actually it was the title of our very first album. It's supposed to be the longest relationship you have with your siblings, so I can see why it ends up in songs and folk tales. And again, it's a great story about two sisters and a knight comes to court them. He gives the eldest his glove and ring, but he loved the youngest best and so the elder sister is really jealous and takes her younger sister out to see her father's ships and then pushes her in and the younger sister's like saying oh please can you give me your hand and she's like no and she drowns and then ends up at a miller's dam but she's covered in pearls and gold and then a harper happens to be passing by so makes her body into a harp and then this harp is taken to a father's hall but the only song it'll sing is basically telling the truth about what has happened and yonder stands my brother Hugh Benori, oh Benori and by him my William sweet and true by the bonny mill dams of Benori but the last tune that the harp played then Benori, oh Benori was woe to my sister False Helen by the Barney Mill Dams of Benori. Quite fittingly, towards the end of the programme, we've ended up literally on the banks of the Tyne here in Corbridge, and I'm standing with Chris Bostock, who is a storyteller from Newcastle. And uh, Chris, you have more than a handle on some of the stories from this part of the world. Well, me and my friends, we like to have a big crack now and again. Floating down the Tyne come so many memories of past and present. You know, not far from here, right up the way, just on the Simonside Hills, just away from Rossbury, there was a peddler man. He'd gone away from home and he needed to get back home to see his children that night. But it was getting dark. Should he take the long way round by the road or should he make his way up over the hills? He chose the short route, but the weather closed in. The clouds came down and before he knew it he couldn't see his hand in front of his face. He was groping on the rocks and wondering if he was going to get home alive when he saw a flickering light ahead of him. He was delighted and he made his way towards... Well, he wasn't quite sure what it was actually. Was it a little shepherd's croft? Could it have been... It was shelter in any case and inside there was a fire burning. Oh, he was delighted. In he went and it did feel a little strange. He sat himself down on the other side of the fire... And he'd only just done that before he heard a rustling outside. And a small head peeked around the doorway. It was a mean-looking face, pointed nose, small eyes. A little creature dressed in a lambskin. It came in and it stood and it stared. And the travelling man looked back and didn't know what to do. And then, just to be polite, he took a stick from the fire and put it deep into the flames. The little man did the same. He took another stick and pushed it into the flames, and the little man did the same, and this went on, staring at each other until there was only one stick to go. And it was a travelling man's turn to pick one up. But the stick was just out of reach. 
He was just about to get up and take it when he thought he'd better not. So he stayed sitting and watching until sleep grabbed his eyelids and closed them. He was woken by the sun shining on him and he looked all around. There was nothing there. There was no fire, there was no creature, there was no house, there was, there was no stick. But to the side of him where the stick had been there was a cliff and if he had taken that one step he would have fallen onto the sharp rocks below. He realised who he had been with. He had been with the Dwergar. You see, when the Vikings came to this wonderful land they wanted to settle, they left behind many place names, many story names as well. And so it's good to remember the old and the new and our wonderful land. <laughs>